Thank you for tuning in to the You Own the Experience podcast. In this episode, Lauren and Rob rap about the creating a business case for technology acquisitions and the benefit of aligning yourself with procurement and your finance team. Later in the episode, the dynamic duo are joined by Tom Nahila, CFO of the Global Trust Project and formerly the CFO of a large global staffing and recruiting company. Here, Mann, Jones, and Nahila discuss the underserved reputation of finance departments within staffing and recruiting firms. They look at how the role of finance is often misunderstood, how these teams are often seen as no people, an organizational anchor dragging along the seafloor, but how in reality, they're more akin to the ship's navigator, tasked with charting a safe and profitable course. The crew also chats about how Netflix has nailed the trust and transparency needed for financial success, finance as the pragmatic partner that every technology professional needs, and why procurement feels like the Voldemort of staffing. This episode is brought to you by Leap Consulting Solutions and ABLE. Please remember to rate, review, and share the episode, and you can subscribe for all the updates and live chats at www.ableteams.com slash podcast. Enjoy! What is happening to our You Own the Experience listeners? So excited about today's episode. Hello, Rob! What's up, Lauren? I'm Samban over here. How you doing? No, I see the grooving happening. It's, it's either so is either like a Brazilian samba or like a Trinidad and, and a Tobago a little strut or tut that they do when they're walking down the street for carnaval. Yeah, it's, it's summertime. Yeah. I'm a little relaxed. What do you got? Okay, all right, all right. Well, okay, so are you a good chair dancer? Or are you an actually good dancer? My husband's an excellent chair dancer. It's when the standing up happens that we get a little we get a little sideways with our ability to dance. Um, <laughs> is there any? <laughs> <laughs> um, I can learn choreography. Okay. Uh, I, All right. So you're a TikToker is what I hear you saying. No, I actually learned real choreography before. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Um, I'm not a great, I would say I'm like a solid okay. B dancer. Solid B. Okay. Like, I'm not trained. I'm not skilled. I don't practice enough, but I can move and I have rhythm. I would say most people would agree with. We can pull the wife and all my, all right. all my yeah. All right. Well, I adore How about my How about you? Are you a... Are you a chair dancer? I can dance. Well, I'm a little Latina, so I can dance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, dale. Uh, mm-hmm. But I love my husband and he has many skills. Standing up and dancing isn't one of them, though. All right. Well, now <laughs> we learn something new about Mr. Jones. Right? Yes, Mr. Jones. Many skills. He can build anything. He sounds literally like the guy from the song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind of like that. All right. We are talking all things money and finance today. I'm really excited to share this episode with our listeners because it's sometimes an uncomfortable block in the procurement of new technology. So we're bringing in a financial expert to talk about engaging in a really healthy partnership with your finance department because it's an important part of either creating a business case, you know, understanding the short and long-term financial advantages of technology investments. I'm really excited about this conversation because I think it's not talked about because you hear the word procurement and everybody, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. That's not the way it should be. We were, we were kidding when we were interviewing Tom about every time he said procurement, I pretended like I was the hyenas and the Lion King and went, ooh, as if someone had said Mufasa. No, but seriously, if you're doing a good job in sales and you've created some champions internally, procurement just can be your friend. 
Because if you created a great business case for the tool or whatever you're trying to do, I mean, that's their job too, right? Their job is to help the CFO, the procurement team, their job is to help the businesses spend money to grow and wisely. So it's not, it shouldn't be something that makes you go, ooh. <laughs> no, it shouldn't. It should get you excited, right? When Tom gives me all of these little hills I had to climb from a financial perspective to put my business case, what I hear is, and you'll hear it in the episode, you know, you're saying there's a chance, right? So Lauren is the eternal optimist in this episode. I am. I, am like, you're I want to spend $100,000, Tom. Can you make a business case? Lauren's like, there's a chance. I there's got a this. Chance. Yeah. So look at it as a really healthy challenge. Work with your vendor partner. They should be the ones that are also helping you put a good business case together to put in front of finance. Once you put it in front of finance or procurement, your collective contribution to this business case can help you elevate it to an entirely new level when you go to put it in front of the C-suite. So I believe in a healthy partnership with your finance and procurement departments. And I think our listeners are going to walk away with some tangible tips on how to make that relationship work. Yeah, I agree. And so there's a few things that I want to highlight, two or three things, and we'll get over to this really great interview with Tom. By the way, Tom is a super personable nerd, so it's a great conversation <laughs> yes, for a yes. CFO. Normally they are, I'm just kidding. But uh, when I'm you're sorry, th- all our CFO listeners. Yeah, sorry guys. What's interesting is coming from a salesperson perspective who has worked in recruitment, a lot of recruitment businesses really operate in the black, right? Whereas like a lot of technology providers can operate for years in the red, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's kind of a cool thing about our business is our CFOs, our controllers are really highly focused on cash positive, right? Like operating at a profit right away. And I like that. And I Novel think, concept. <laughs> well, I mean, in today's world where there's venture money everywhere, right? Like VC money, <laughs> that's what VC money is. It's just shooting everywhere. Anyway, especially right now. And so I think CFOs and controllers and people on the finance side of the business that do it right, procurement, uh, can really help their businesses. And that kind of ties into what I want to say is like the ROI and proving the business case and holding your vendors accountable to an ROI is really important because this is nothing against here, Fisher Sense, but sometimes it's really hard to target their ROI right away. Sometimes you can get a placement and can see it, but there's other vendors that you get to ROI right away and you can see it pretty tangibly. So Understanding that with your vendor is huge. And so, Lauren, I want to give you a quick question is you come in as a digital transformation officer, almost like a fractional one. That's significantly cheaper than hire someone full time to do what you do. Can you share some insights into that conversation? Kind of give you a minute to plug. Like if you were talking to a CFO or your champion in a business and you're about to go to procurement to get your deal signed. So I look at it in two different buckets. I look at it and I look at here, fish and sense in a very specific bucket. So I look at it in revenue generation and revenue preservation. For me, automation is about revenue preservation because it's going to allow you to engage with your workforce in a really consistent and meaningful way. It's going to help you with redeployment and referrals, kind of the three R's and retention. So those are the three R's, referrals, retention, and redeployment. And so if you can put it in two buckets, right? And you can work with your finance department to say, 
this is what I'm looking at purchasing. Here's what the investment is. Here's how we're going to track it. Here's how I'm going to report it to you. Here's what we expect the ROI to be. I haven't had too many instances where I've put a business case, not only in front of finance, but in front of an executive committee where they've said no, because I've had those ducks in a row, but it has taken a partnership with procurement and or finance to put that meaningful business case together to get the desired end result. Which I was asking directly about you, by the way. I was, actually, I was asking about your role. When you go in and someone's saying, hey, I want to sign a fractional digital transformation officer. Oh, is, yeah. Okay. Are, so, yeah, I was being very direct. Sorry. Okay. So, that, was, that was helpful for sure. So when I'm coming in as a fractional digital transformation officer, we're answering a few questions. What are the long-term goals? What resources do we have to get there? How much time do we have to get there? What are we working with today, right? We're really doing an inventory And then we align all of those things. We create basic technical requirements and we take into consideration disruption, you know, as it pertains to change management. It's a huge financial component of a digital transformation. And and so bringing in a fractional chief digital transformation officer can help you align everything, you know, have those proverbial ducks in a row, not only from a business case perspective, but from a road mapping perspective to ensure that you have a roadmap that is aligned to your organization's vision. Because I wholeheartedly believe that you can procure technology that is reflective of your core values and your vision and culture. And you can do it quickly without an RFP for God knows how long. Yes. Gone are the days where we can have year-long RFP processes and 27 steering committees. We're just not there anymore. Technology moves too quickly. You need to buy quickly. You need to assess risk quickly. And you really need to have the top three questions that you're going to ask vendors. How are they financed? How are they supported? What is their implementation process? How much does it cost? And what's post-implementation look like with those vendors? Those are kind of my top three, you know, if I'm burning through questions with uh, potential vendors. Awesome. Well, that was a good answer, and I appreciate that. I think that's really important, right? I think we're having this money conversation. As much as we can give people tools to understand what they should be asking and where the value is going to get derived, the ROI, whether it's soft, hard, et cetera, whatever we call it, is going to be gained. So. And our world of work is changing a little bit. You know, you're seeing a ton of fractional CMOs, fractional CTOs, fractional CIOs, and I don't think that's going to change. So a fractional chief digital transformation officer is no different. And I only think that we're going to see that sort of footprint of work continue to expand in our industry. Yep. And I'm doing very little, but some fractional like Curefish and Sense Consulting. So it makes sense. Well, let's get to the interview and learn about procurement. And and being a CFO of a very, very large staffing company and how to deal with Lauren when you're doing it, who wants to buy everything (laughs) under the sun. (laughs) She walks the salesperson into the CFO's office and says, we're going to buy this. And now let's learn what happens once they get into the office, right? It's it's kind of like a mini drama we're about to experience. Anyway, Lauren, this has been great. Uh, Thank you. Guys, this episode is brought to you by Leap Consulting. Hint, hint, that's Lauren's company. And Abel. All right, here is the interview after this short break with Tom Nahila, CFO. Able offers a fully featured onboarding automation platform to help staffing firms just like yours ensure all candidates have a world-class onboarding experience. The company's mobile-first platform makes qualifying, hiring, and engaging candidates easy for everyone involved. 
Able is trusted by some of the world's largest staffing agencies and can automate even the most complex of hiring workflows, giving your team 40% of their day back and allowing you to hire up to 90% faster at half the cost. Visit ableteams.com to learn more. What is happening, Rob? Lauren, we are recording this on a Friday. And it a is fry-yay. a Friday. I would is, like some fro yo on my Friday. Yep, and you already moved your mic once, so it's just a successful podcast. Thank yes, you for that. You're welcome. I needed to move it closer to my face. <laughs> okay, moving on. With us today, we have a pretty interesting and a unique perspective for the YOE podcast. We have a CFO. Mr. Tom Nahila. Tom, what's going on? How are we doing? How are we doing? Coming from New Jersey, where it's bright and sunny one moment, rainy the next, but all good. Glad Sounds like here. Florida. It hasn't yeah. rained in Florida, though, in no, a long no, no, time. No. no, no, no. Rob, I need Florida. Florida? Florida. Florida. No, it's, Florida. it's like fluoride, but it's Florida. Flor- Florida? Florida. I've heard yeah. Florida. Flo- Florida. <laughs> oh, man. Tom. How do you New, New Jersey. Jersey say it? Tom. New Jersey. Yes, sir. She's a hater. See that? I am not. I am not. Tom is also from New Jersey, guys. I'm originally from New Jersey. So uh, due to the fact that uh, (laughs) we should continue this interview, let's keep going here. Anyway, so Tom, why don't you give a quick, quick two minute elevator pitch about your background and also where you're working, which is super cool. And I'm always like, every time you say it, I get goosebumps because I think that's one of the things missing in the world. So go ahead. I've been in various industries over the course of my long career, telecom, media publishing, staffing, and doing some consulting work as we speak. Probably the biggest thing that I would impart on ending financial leaders is it's all about understanding the business from the bottom up. And I had a wealth of experiences working for some great mentors over my career at AT AT&T, Lutz and Avaya, who really threw me into the deep end, really understanding the challenges of the business working side by side with great leaders like Lauren, other operational leaders. And at the end of the day, what finance is about is no different than any other operational leader. It's about creating value for the corporation. Looking forward, bringing together a lot of insights, connecting a lot of dots, having fun, having a passion for it, and really making a difference about the trajectory of the company. Tom, you didn't say you were a CFO. Tom is a chief financial officer, by the way. So go ahead, keep going. (laughs) No worries, no worries, all good. I am currently the CFO of the Global Trust Project, and this is a a very new startup. It's been around for about a year, and our intent, to be honest, is to help change the world. We've all experienced what 2020 was all about. We know that trust didn't exist here in North America. It didn't exist across the world, and we have created a process, and more importantly, a tool called the Trust Equity Index, which is very similar to Myers-Briggs. We work side by side with the right industries who are willing to have us come into their organization, establish a baseline around trust through very candid conversations with their team, and more importantly, to build trust through a series of consultation efforts to both improve the perspective of trust in the organization. And we know that when you have a higher degree of trust in the organization, you are more successful as an organization, more profitable, more healthy, both in the short and long term. So it's been a very interesting last year perspective where we've made some good progress and we have an opportunity to make more across a much bigger environment. Glad to be here, guys. Totally agree. And I think that like HR, 
finance gets a bad rap, right? The synonymous with procurement and some of the other naughty words that our software vendors and salespeople alike don't like to necessarily deal with, but can really, I mean, just having been there can really be a phenomenal partner in helping you either articulate a business case for something new within your organization. Finance is an untapped resource for you operational folk out there or technology folk are really trying to innovate within your organization and just don't know how to articulate the goodness that something might have to offer the organization, partner with finance to help show your C-level people exactly what the impact both operationally and financial might be. It's an untapped resource. Got to say it. I mean, if you're going to sell to an enterprise client, you're eventually going to end up with someone with an F in their title. So you could either be F blank C-K-E-D, or I didn't say it, (laughs) or you can partner with them and win the deal. I think that's what you were trying to say. Yeah, you said it much more explicitly, but yes, you don't want to end up in a situation where you have this really great idea and no substantial evidentiary support to put in front of your executives to say, this is what I think the long and short-term benefit of X might be if you are willing to partner with a finance professional to help articulate your business case. I mean, you can expedite those types of changes. And that having worked with Tom, that's exactly what we did is fast track potential changes to the organization that we you know in concept are going to be good and you think and you know operationally and from a training and change management perspective, you know they'd be impactful, but there's more to digital transformation than just the technical marketing operational side. There's also the business justification. And if you don't have a great relationship with your finance partner, it's going to be an uphill climb to articulate the why. Yeah, let's let the SCFO jump in there. Finance historically has been very willing and very easy to say no. Yes. Right? <laughs> That's the reason we, we avoid. Yeah, we, we know all those individuals, but at the same time, a good financial leader will figure out how, maybe not to say yes in a complete sense, but figure out how to give enough leeway and, let's say, entrepreneurial push to get it in the right direction to really test the, the capabilities of a given initiative. It's a matter of how can I help solve the problem and maybe not give you $10, $100 million to make it happen, but get you to the next step so we can start evolving and trialing, creating some quick failures that we learn from and we do do reports and move forward quickly. Yeah. That's a really good point because Tom was really good at giving me a sandbox, right? Just a little financial sandbox to go, okay, let's prove some of these out. Yeah, it's like the entrepreneur model, right? Like being an entrepreneur inside the business, you get the sandbox expenditure approved. Now you can build the use case for the rest of the organization. So anyway, speaking of getting approval, Tom, our first question, because you and I are both reading the book, No Rules Rules, is how do you feel when you picked up that book and the team at Netflix is talking about having anybody approve any level of expenditure, as long as they can validate it and, and means test it against the core, well-defined context of what the business is driving towards. Yeah, and frankly, being a part of many large corporations and being a part of many large or mid-sized corporations, we never had a conversation in those corporations about expense policy. It was basically, here it is, 
This is what you have to adhere to. No ifs, ands, or buts. Reading the book, it connected a lot of dots for me in terms of the Global Trust Project because inherent in what existed Netflix is an organization where leaders and employees trust one another. Now, number one, they trust, they're talented individuals. There's a clear understanding, and I'll add another key, transparency on what's going on in an organization with regard to strategy. And in many respects, the employees know the financial situations before the financial situation of the company is announced externally, which is not a bad thing, but it's different than any other corporation that I've been a part of. It takes a lot of trust, communication, and clearly understanding what's in the best interest of the company and giving the employees the ability to act accordingly, which is very different. So it's really opened up a lot of possibilities for me as I continue to take on my role. And it will require some testing. I'm clearly certain that I'm not going to go full bore in terms of implementing an influence model, but it's going to take some time really to understand and assess the governance and the pulse of the business before moving too forward fast. But it's a great case study. It is. And I think it's kind of like your diet, right? Everything in moderation. And because there's the other side of that, and that is businesses with half a million dollars in rogue spend out there on ancillary credit cards. When you don't have governance and you don't have consistent branding, you know, you may end up with a bigger financial issue on your hands if you don't put some governance, some semblance of consistency behind the motivation or particularly with job boards probably are the biggest example of the potential for rogue spend because you can buy things individually. You can buy things on a credit card. LinkedIn is another one where you can buy a membership and we're not taking advantage of data integrity and recovery and having a national agreement, being able not to pay retail. So it's balancing all of the benefits that you get from buying on a large scale and a large organization but providing an entrepreneurial spirit. I think the balance is providing those try it before you buy it opportunities, but it requires transparency and communication. And that means you can't be afraid to go to your finance department and say, hey, we want to try Zoom Info or we want to try Hoover's or X, Y, or Z and be able to get the yes because we have this little sandbox to be able to play with and communicate what's the ROI going to be. Which leads me to my next question. Wait, we, uh, <laughs> we should talk about rogue spend since we just brought it up already. And got yeah, it. yeah. Well, let's talk about rogue you wanna, spend. You want to? We'll pivot. By the way, we have an outline of what we normally want to talk about, guys. But rogue spend was number four on the list, and we're going to move it up to number two. So, yeah. rogue spend. Tom, the story that you told about rogue spend on our initial call was pretty fascinating, right? Laura, I want to finish your thought and then let Tom talk about how he reined in a large publicly traded staffing company's rogue spend. Which is making, you can't see Tom, but he just gave like that quiet sigh. You know, like when you're in a meeting and someone just pits their head up because they're tired of that one person talking. <laughs> Tom, Tom just did that on the video. So, Lauren, sorry, I finished your thought. I'm sorry I cut you off. No, well, Tom and I did it together. So, reigning in that rogue spend is a team effort. But his unique partnership and viewpoint was an essential part of, of reeling that in. Thank you. So, from my perspective, I would say in speaking on behalf of most CFOs, there's a couple of things that are near and dear to our view of the business and how we manage it effectively. Number one, we hate surprise. And number two, as long as we have our processes in place and we can predict the future with some level of certainty, 
many more things could happen. So with that as a backdrop, let me come back to the, the case in point. In the organization that Lauren and I were a part of, there was spending going on all over the place. But let me compare and contrast, right? We had roughly 80 branches across the country, and they all had the ability, whether it was via their credit card or whether it was via their purchase orders, to buy what they believed was important to the success of their individual operations. And as you can imagine, in what respect, it's great to have an entrepreneurial approach to do what's needed. At the same time, from an economies to scale, if you go out and negotiate a contract with LinkedIn 80 times, you're not going to get the best price with LinkedIn and any other event. Right? So what was important to us is stepping really back and what do we expect and hold accountable for those 80 branch managers? We, account, we hold them accountable to do two things. Sell more contracts with existing and new clients and to recruit more candidates that can fill those jobs with those existing and new clients. We honestly don't want them to do anything else. And as a result, we moved in the purchasing from a very decentralized mode to a centralized mode. And Lauren and I collaborated on creating enterprise contracts with all of the job board out there, as well as our core technology providers. So in essence, we created an economy to scale, we saved a hell of a lot of money, created a standard with regard to the US marketplace, and gave our field resources less things to do with regard to what they did in the past so they could focus on the stuff that really mattered. And creating an environment where when they see a product, you know, if you see something, say something. If you see something that looks interesting, let's create an open environment where you can come and say, hey, this looks really interesting. Will you check it out? Right. And that I think more than anything is where organizations can create a safety net that somebody might need to bring an idea forward and want to try something, clarity of what the financial picture will be. And then having that partnership with finance to say, you know, this is what we have to work with. And again, it's all about communication, transparency, and it requires the business to go to finance and start asking those questions. How can we put a strategy together? How can we innovate? How can we try new things and try and put some rules around it? That's the key to success there is because then both parties win. You get that beautiful entrepreneurial spirit that you hear in the book and at Netflix where you can try these new things, but we do have some financial rules around it so it doesn't negatively impact the business. I think that makes sense. And Tom, you also, kind of in the same vein, I remember you telling me that you also did a lot of work, big publicly traded company, acquiring branches all over the place. You had to do a lot of work consolidating rogue financial pieces as well, right? Not like rogue in a bad way, but like on their own, right? And consolidating it and organizing it to help save money in the organization. I, yes. think, I feel like that's a part of that conversation, right? You know, and here's one example. I won't share the names of the clients, but there was a very large client that we had in our former company. And they generated about $25 million in spend every year. When I asked the question to our then unit CFO, is this client profitable? The answer that came back was absolutely. They're extremely profitable. I then asked, can you show me what you see? Because I want to be able to see the same thing. So he took me through the various stages of the profitability statement. And I paused and I said, did you know that this client who spends roughly $25 million with us pays us with a credit card? And he said, 
I wasn't aware of that. And I said, then, do you know where the fees for that credit card show up on the P&L statement that you just showed me? He said, uh, I don't think they do. And for a company the size of this client, $25 million with the associated fees was roughly a half a million dollars. You apply that half a million dollars to the profitability statement, is that customer really profitable or as profitable as you thought they were? The answer was, unfortunately not. So we made a quick decision that we needed to remove the ability to pay our company for the use of the credit card. But again, it was another exception that existed in the business. And at one time, it was okay. And the, the local sales organizations had the flexibility to go out and say, any way that you want to pay us is acceptable. Pause. We're now in a new world. It doesn't make sense for us to entertain every possibility because it doesn't work financially for us, unless we're going to charge them the fees that the credit card company charges us. So just an example about exceptions and deviations and bringing things together and really being transparent about where every dollar goes and where you have profitable clients and where you don't. And in some respects, and this is hard for me to say, a $25 million client may not be best served than going for a portfolio of the company if that's what they demand of you as a provider. Right. And I think we as an industry, we have a hard time saying no to our customers. You know, we want to be accommodating. And historically, we've bent over backwards, whether it's with process or orientations or on-sites. And there may only be 25 people at the client and where we find a way to justify an on-site. But if you can, and the point of all, the lesson to all of this to my staffing agencies out there is that you must partner with your finance department to really look at accounts that you think are profitable and dig just a layer deeper, just one or two layers deeper. And you can uncover, maybe we're not as profitable as we think we are. Maybe we don't have the right mutually beneficial partnership with a customer. It's having another partner to help you make sense of a certain perception and then the ultimate reality. And I think if you can do that, and this podcast is about removing this barrier to partnership that we have with our respective finance and HR department. I mean, we used to call the HR department human roadblock because we thought they were in our way. But if you can partner with them, right, you can get some really cool things done. And the same is applicable to your finance and dare I say, procurement department to help make the Can best Can you stop decisions. saying that word? Like, it's like, you know when they say Mufasa? Approach. In like, in like, the, in like the elephant graveyard and the hyenas. <laughs> like, every time you say procurement, I get like the shit. You get itchy? Saying. Do you get itchy? I know every salesperson gets itchy when you say procurement. Ugh. But it can be a really good thing. I had an amazing relationship with our- Don't say it again. Don't say it. Procurement representative. Oh, <laughs> Um, But it's about creating that transparency and partnership. I'm going to say it again. Transparency and partnership with your finance and the word, the naughty word. It's like Voldemort. Don't say it. (laughs) Anyway. But, but, you know, Rob, to Laura's point, it comes back to we all have needs and interests from our various functions. How can we get together and align on, and from an easy standpoint, a middle ground, or more importantly, can we develop a solution that works for you in sales, for me in procurement, or for me in, in finance, and all working together for the common goal? 
there's a way to solve these problems. Absolutely. And I'm mostly messing around just because it's fun. But like, I feel like 2020 did a lot of really good things for HR divisions. I feel like they've gotten creative and they're much more appreciated. Because business as usual no longer exists, the finance teams have to say, well, we got to figure out how to make the money again. So we get back to that creative piece, right? And and like, we're going to get to this next, this conversation we're about to have. We get back to trying to figure it out with, and the idea being, right, like, what is the best short-term spend for the long-term value? What is the percentage of revenue that you're going to tie to digital transformation, right? So those are the next two topics. But they really tie nicely, and we kind of went in reverse, which is really fun, to get there. But... Totally not how we plan this, right? Like the funnel went the other way today. But it's really interesting, right? Because we we still, like all these topics tie so neatly together and they're so integrated, right? So like, is this client profitable if you dig a layer deeper? How do you measure and designate revenue or dollars to partners to help you be more profitable? So like, that's really where we're going. So I mean, it's, it's a very big broad thing. There's really no right way, right, Lauren, to do this? Yes, um, of course there there's is. millions of ways to do it. I would say doing it is probably the right way and figuring yeah. it out. <laughs> Again, initiating the conversation with your finance department, right? And it's, so we've talked about road spend. We've talked about governance. We've talked about partnering with your, your finance department to look for every area of opportunity uh, for profitability. That's directly related to how you manage your vendors and the respective ROI that you are intending to receive. And if you don't have clarity of purpose as far as how are we holding them accountable, what does that look like? How are we looking at it? How frequently are we looking at it? You're really setting, I feel like you're setting the mutual partnership up for failure. You know, it's just like a relationship. You can't have unspoken expectations and you need to have all your ducks in a row, your proverbial ducks in a row to ensure that you're getting what you paid for. You're communicating what you need. And your vendor has clarity of how they're supposed to perform in the time frame that they're supposed to perform it. And finance can be hugely beneficial in helping you articulate what those metrics and or what that ROI should be. Tom, she already answered your question for you. So. Well, yes, and she typically does. I'll add a couple <laughs> points. The importance of the relationship with your vendors and your partners also require you to have a clear understanding of where your vendor's roadmap is going, right? So it's not just important to understand how they perform based on what they did for you yesterday. It's even more important for them to articulate how they're going to perform and exceed your expectations going forward. Now, given I wore a couple hats at the last staffing company I was a part of, including the procurement leader, I had to go back and renegotiate a five-year contract that we had with a very large ATS CRM partner because, frankly, they committed in their roadmap when we signed the deal and they never delivered effectively in one of the key functionality aspects of what we expected. So, by the way, guys, for the rest of this episode, let's not actually name any companies. Yeah. Let's just talk around them. Yep. Yeah. We might want to be careful because you can track okay. that one back. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. Just don't say any names. There's no names. No names. no names. Thou who shall not be named. No, we can't say a single company's name for the rest of the day, except for the company, besides for Netflix. Well, and we haven't Tom said any companies. I know, that's what I'm saying. It's funny. Go, sorry, go. We haven't said any companies, but it's not difficult to do the math. Well, hey, some people are lazy. It's fine. Let's go. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, Tom. Go ahead. 
don't know, but you know, it comes down to the relationship that we have with our clients. In many respects, should be no different than the relationships that we have with our partners. It's mutually beneficial. And the contracts that we sign with our partners need to take care of our requirements and satisfy what we agree to based on prior experience, as well as, and probably more importantly, what they're going to do for us going forward. We have to hold them accountable to listen to our requirements, build that into the roadmap, and continue to surprise us in a positive way on what they could do for us again and again and again and again. It's about solving our problems, not now, all the time. As someone who's been very consistently on the vendor side, selling into procurement, I've never actually, well, I've been a buyer now, but when I was working my first couple of jobs, I was not a buyer of technology, right? And I haven't been a buyer at the scale that you guys worked at, but I always ask the question though, Tom, and this is a quick answer, I think, for you and Lauren. Is there a time where that roadmap where it's just like, it's an absolute quick fix need and it's written into the contract or you somehow figure out, hey, our roadmap, we're still trying to figure it out maybe, right? New vendor, Tom, Lauren, right? Like we work with sometimes, but it's an absolute must. Is that okay? Is that acceptable? If it's going to be someone you're going to date for two years and not marry? I personally have no issue with that. And it comes back to our earlier conversation about you try it, right? You experiment with it. You see how it works. You get, you know, some focus groups from your field into the organization and say, what would this do differently for your day-to-day operation? And if there's enough of a benefit associated with it, then you construct a formal business case. Mm-hmm. You go deeper and wider and you make an investment request because at the end of the day, if it's the right thing to do and it has inherent value for your field representatives as well as you at corporate, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. My answer would be the same. I mean, there are some tools out there that there may be a short-term benefit because maybe it's a project that's very specific for your organization, right? And that's where that flexibility, communication, entrepreneurship, transparency, all of that can be so impactful and helping you navigate. Maybe it's a big short-term demand for a short period of time and you need something very specific, You know, if you don't have that good partnership with finance, it's going to be really hard to internally sell something like that. The only thing that I would add is we've come from the days, and this is a technology comment, come from the days where we had best-of-breed solutions. Now we have cloud providers that do some great things in specific areas of functionality. Back to your question to me, I would only guard about if you had... 10 vendors that created an end-to-end portfolio of your technology versus 100 vendors. I would be very careful because not speaking from an IT perspective, managing 100 vendors and 100 different interfaces, especially if they're all cloud providers, can become difficult. One, you also have issues around cybersecurity. Number two, are those companies that you're dealing with financially sound now and more importantly going forward? You would hate to deal with someone that six months from now they go bankrupt and they were a critical part of your core end-to-end solution. So there's a lot of different factors that go into it. But inherently, I would rather experiment shortly, smallly, make a minimal investment, see where it goes, but be cognizant of the grand portfolio that we're trying to fit into. I really, because you're from New Jersey, I really want you to use the word hugely. Hugely? Hugely? Huge. We don't use that word. You don't? We don't. That's not us. That's, that's not you. Some, that's a Brooklyn Huge. Queens thing. 
Huge. That's that's huge. not us. You know, I don't you think know, I've you know? ever. I don't think I've ever used the word like in my day to day. Huge. Uh, I use ginormous. It's way more. Ginormous. <laughs> anyway, speaking of, and this is like the word ginormous kind of splits in here. Funny is Tom. I think you said it. The difference between a cloud and a server-based installation or implementation of a software makes trial a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And that was going to be my next question, right? Because if the short-term fix is a pain in the ass to implement, is it going to get past, it should get past Lauren at that point, right? Let alone to you. Because if it's a six-month fix for a big project, but it's a pain in the butt to deal with and get rolling, like unless it's really going to drive a ton of revenue for the cost, is the juice really worth that squeeze there? You know? Yeah. So. But you need finance in order to weigh all of that. You know, what is the implementation yeah. fee? How long is that going to be? What are the man hours? I mean, there were things that we put into a business case that I hadn't really thought of and how you might allocate for it short and long term. And so, again, there's a case to be made as long as you have a great partnership with your finance department. But I will say, as a consultant, the number one question that I am asked all the time is what percentage of my revenue should I be dedicating to innovation and technology procurement on my user? That was my question too. How did you know? I know. Well, because we got to get there. That was the, that's the last topic. I get this question at least two times a week. And I loved your answer when we did our pre-call because I think that I think that's the right answer. <laughs> I'm going to share my perspective on this. And this is somewhat of a non-answer. It all depends on corporation you're a part of. How financially healthy are you? And frankly, there's a big difference between a company that is break-even, barely unprofitable or just on the verge of being profitable, versus a company that is growing 10% a year, 20% a year, that's delivering 15, 20, 30% even every year. The answer fits somewhere in between. There is no perfect right answer. What I would say is when I look at investments, I put them in two buckets. Investments associated with future opportunities, either around customer acquisition, market acquisition, or a fundamental change in process, the use of technology, how that all comes together, versus what you need to do to manage risk. Risk inherent, and again, a big topic these days is around cybersecurity. Are you protected? And to be perfectly honest, if Lauren came to me and said, Tom, I need $100,000 and I have an option either to put the $100,000 toward protecting our environment because we haven't done the right encryption, we don't have the right security in place, I'm most likely going to put the funds toward cyber protection because if I don't protect the company, the company may not be around tomorrow, right? There's too many things at risk. So it's It's a delicate balance between understanding your entire corporation, where you are financially, where you are from an overall process risk standpoint. And then lastly, and I hate to say last, it's about how can you continue to build a corporation as long as you have, again, no surprises in your financial picture, you have a high level of predictability, and you carve out investment funds to put on the side at the beginning of every year to denote or to highlight for the right projects going forward, right? So the answer could be everything in between depending on the size of the company. So this is why I love this answer, you guys, because this is what I hear when Tom says all of that. 
So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> that, is, that is what I hear. And I get all giddy inside when I hear that because I'm like, okay, so you're saying that if we do this intelligently enough, if we put our ducks in a row, if we have a plan, if we can create a business case, if we have a time frame, if all of these things align, right, then we can take action on this. And whenever he would tell me that, I thought to myself, there's a chance that we can do this. And that for somebody like me, which there are many now, there are many chief digital transformation officers and VPs of talent technology, all of these types of operational technology people are emerging to wrap their arms around this technology. And they need a partner to be able to intelligently buy on behalf of the organization. And I think your best and closest friend can be finance in that effort because you have the ideas, you have the vision, you're seeing all the product. And let's just be real. You know, Tom's point of, is this a viable partner moving forward is a real concern. What does that risk look like? Because we, HR tech investment has gone from like 1.7 billion to almost 5 billion, which means there's all of this product out there for us to wade our way through. And you need finance to help ask those digging questions of those potential vendor partners that you might not otherwise think of because you're focused on, you're focused on the shiny tool. And so you need a pragmatic partner to help you navigate a good business plan in potentially investing in technology. That those, so yeah, Tom says all that stuff. And let me add one more point, right? And this comes back to no surprises and predictability. If I know as the CFO that we're gonna be short on our full year forecast by $30 million, Lauren comes to me and said, Tom, I need to make an investment in X. That investment is going to cost $10 million, but it's going to help me sign up an additional thousand clients. And by the end of the year, I believe we could deliver another $50 million in revenue. My short answer is going to be, okay, it makes sense. Now, are you going to be held accountable? Am I going to hold you accountable to your word? And delivering that $50 million, which offsets my $30 million miss in aggregate, so we're better off by 20, with you and your constituents are going to make this investment happen. Are you going to be accountable? If the answer is absolutely, and we have the right metrics in place to hold you accountable, I'm going to say, let's go, make it happen. And that's what you need. This is what you need in a finance partner, particularly now. I think the role of finance is also changing because we need somebody that can do the weighing of those things instead of just this sort of black and white outline of what the investment is supposed to look like or or what path we're on and we're staying the course. When I go to a bank to go get potential investment money, I want the bank to ask me questions about my business plan and where I'm going and what my goals are instead of just this, this, and this, yes or no. That's not the kind of financial partner I want. And so you need to look for those same things internally with your finance department. I was going to ask for some last words of wisdom from Tom, but I think we just got him. Yes, uh, we did. And Lauren kind of summed it up. By the way, Tom, you spoke for like three minutes and Lauren was like, all I heard was there's a chance. So I just <laughs> want to highlight that again. <laughs> she, yeah, that's what I hear. I heard all of those words. And even when we worked together, I was like, oh my God, I think he's going to, there's a chance here. He's saying the words. He's saying well, he's, so many words. He, he's clearly the guy who's going to say yes if you make the right case. Right. Yes, absolutely. He's not, he's not the flat no guy for no reason. Right. But, the flat yes guy and the flat no guy are both wrong. Correct. If that's not the point of finance. The point of finance is to 
understand the business and help you make cases for driving revenue and growth or to save money because there's no possibility. Exactly. In, in 2020. We're both on the same team at the end yeah. of the day, right? We win or lose as a corporation, not by function. We have to figure out how to develop solutions to address the problems that we have every day. Yeah. And I think I took a lot out of this conversation, right? Because I've never had to deal with like a true CFO of all the time. I mean, I have, but not like always strategically. So that was pretty awesome. So thank you for part of my MBA class. All right. Tom, any last words for the group? Any imparting wisdom besides for spend money intelligently? I think you just said the highlight. You know, the biggest thing that I impart on folks that work for me, in fact, my son is a financial analyst in New York City these days. And what I say to him is, Christian, get yourself out of the office. Spend more time talking to sales. Spend more time talking to operations. Finance really wants to be a true value partner. They focus not just on finance and the numbers, but really understand the business from the customer back. Every step of the process. And when you have a better understanding of how the business works, you can be a better financial leader. Easy as that. Preach. Yeah. Preach. I would encourage every financial leader, go sit on the front lines. Go see what happens. You know, in fact, if you have the opportunity, and I was very fortunate at a large telecommunications equipment company, I led sales operations there for three years. So I, I went to the other side and really understood how things came together. And to be honest, it made me a better financial leader. That's awesome. All right, guys. Well, Tom, this was amazing. I'm super pumped. We'll connect again, these two Jersey guys, and we'll leave Lauren out. I want to and- talk. I want to have coffee and talk. Are you talking to me? Are you looking at me? You know, guys, this whole like stick, like stick of, of the, uh, the wise guys. So, <laughs> so you're not erudite and it's so overplayed uh-huh. and I'm going to go put on a button down and a suit and go be pretentious. So anyway, thank you all so much, Tom. The sun is setting on you because there's no light on your face <laughs> in the video feed. Lauren, thank you guys. I hope you got as much out of it as we all did. And thank you for both of you, really, because we kind of interviewed Lauren, too, for sharing the wisdom. All right. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. All good. Thank you much. Thank you guys for tuning in to the You on the Experience podcast. This is Rob. And I'm Lauren. Now go do something good. Bye, guys. <laughs>